Uh, today we have a special treat. Uh, Pastor Hector Sanchez, uh, who is a dear friend uh, and also, of course, a colleague, uh, is um, going to be preaching for us today. I'm so grateful for his willingness to join us. Uh, in a moment, you'll be hearing a scripture reading from him, uh, followed up by, uh, by his teaching. Uh, but again, thank you, Pastor Hector, for being part uh, of our service today. I trust that it will be a blessing. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 16 to 32. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked with him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplaces every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears and we wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again on this. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. It's so good to be with you all again. I wish it was in person, but it's great to be able to worship with you virtually. As we start this year, we continue on in our sermon series called Extraordinary Through the Ordinary. That is, that God does extraordinary things through ordinary people in ordinary places doing ordinary things. And the ordinary things that we will look at today are the three points by which we will examine our passage. 
Eyes that see, a heart that feels, and a mouth that speaks. Eyes that see, a heart that feels, and a mouth that speaks. So let's go to a po point number one. Eyes that see. Did you notice the shirt that I'm wearing? It's called the Guayavera. And it's common throughout all of Latin America. Uh, from Mexico to Miami, from Chile to Cuba, every Latino has one or has worn one at some point in their lives. And the, th the thing that I love about Guayaveras is that you can't go wrong with them. They're both casual and formal. They're so formal, you can wear it to a wedding. And they're so casual, you can use it when you hang out with your friends. That's why you see like um, older me retired men um, uh, wearing guayaveras as they play dominoes by the bodegas. They're a wonderful example of Latin culture. And every culture has a wonderful, wonderful things. Guayaveras for Latinos, saris in India, kimonos in Japan, shukas in Kenya, kilt in Scotland. All of these are wonderful examples of, of good things in our cultures. And that's what you would expect. If, as the Bible says, a good God created us and gave us gifts and talents and abilities, um, <clears throat> we would expect some of that goodness to manifest itself in the things in the things that we make and the things that we do, which is what culture is. And in this case, it's clothing, but there's also food and music and the things that we value, like we've, you know, family or being industrious or being punctual. All these are good things found in our cultures. This is what theologians call part of common grace. That is, good things that come from God or flow from the gifts that God, have, God has given us uh, that we do not deserve. And the world is filled with these gifts of common grace. On the other hand, the Bible also tells us that we're fallen, that we're sinful, that we're twisted onto ourselves, that is selfish, that we're broken. It tells us that our first parents disobeyed God, and therefore there's this deep darkness in, in us all. And if that is true, then you would expect that darkness to show its ugly face in our cultures. And it does, doesn't it? Every culture has its darkness, its dark sides. And in a city like New York, where there's so many cultures, where so many cultures come together, it's easy to highlight the beauty of one culture and not see its dark side, or to see only the dark side and not see the beauty of a culture. But if we are to be ambassadors of the love of God in our city, faithful ones, we need to follow the example of Paul in our passage. And the first thing that I want to point out is what Paul sees and how he sees when he comes to Athens and encounters this new culture. So here's a little bit of background to our passage. Paul had just come from Berea, another city to the north of uh, Athens in Greece. In Berea, he had been preaching uh, the good news of Jesus Christ and he had been generally welcomed. But then some Jews came from the city of Thess Thessalonica and started to persecute Paul and he was forced to flee to Athens and that's where we pick up our story in verse 16 now Paul was waiting for his companions at Athens his spirit was provoked within him within him as he saw that the city was full of idols notice that this happens quote-unquote by chance as they say Paul was not planning to be in Athens just yet but forces outside of his control moved him to go to Athens. You know, and there he is. He finds himself in Athens. And as he's waiting, he starts to look around. 
So let me ask you this question. Where does God have you waiting? Maybe it's not a place you plan to be in, but there you are. Maybe it's your workplace. You didn't plan to work there, but there you are. Or maybe you didn't plan to work there this long. Or maybe it's the place where you live. You didn't plan to live there, but there you are. Or the friendships that you have. You didn't seek out these friendships, but there they are. So wherever, whether they, it be the workspace, your workplace, your neighborhood, or your relationships, you know, wherever God has taken you there, maybe in your, in your eyes it's by chance, but let me tell you, it's not by chance at all. God brought you there for a reason at this time. So look around. What do you see? So as Paul was waiting, he started to look around and he started to see. He walked around Athens and he started to see. <clears throat> he wasn't just simply taking in the sights as a tourist would, but he was seeing the city with God's eyes. He was seeing the city with spiritually sensitive eyes and it troubled him. I don't know how long have you been in New York City. For those of us who have been here for a long time, it's easy to not see the city anymore. It's easy to not see the marvel of the Chrysler building. It's easy also not to see um, the sadness of a person experiencing homelessness in the sidewalk. We become numb to it. We don't have eyes to see. It's also easy for those of us who are more newer to New York City to be enamored with it all. <laughs> that is until you have to pay your first month of rent, right? <laughs> but it's easy to be enamored with it. And you start, you know, humming Jay-Z's lyrics under your breath as you walk along, you know. New York, concrete jungle where dreams are made of. But do we see the city? Do we have eyes to really see the city? Like God sees the city. Like Paul saw Athens. Do we see how God loves this city and the beauty in it that reflects Him? Do we see the brokenness that saddens Him or the darkness that angers Him? And are we troubled by it? But in order to do that, we need to be acquainted with God Himself, with His character, with His heart, with who He is. And how do we do that if not by reading the Scriptures, by reading the Bible? How, do we, how else will we know? How else will we know how God is like or what he's not like, what or what he likes and what he doesn't like, or what <clears throat> what he loves and what angers him, what offends him. It's through reading the scriptures. And you know, we're at the beginning of the year, and I personally don't usually do New Year's resolutions, but a new year, it's a great moment to get into a Bible reading plan. And not as a resolution per se, maybe, but as a fresh start. You know, maybe with a couple of your friends, you can uh, pick a book and go one book at a time and you can talk about it together, discuss it, pray through it. Uh, get something going in the, in the new year. Read, get into the scriptures. And as you do, you will start no to notice the things that God loves and the things that He doesn't. You will start to, to have eyes to see like God sees our city. And by the way, it's not only our city that we need to have eyes for, but also our cultures. Where is their beauty in them? 
And where is their darkness in them? As we start to get vision and start to see the beauty, we will also see the darkness. In biblical lingo, the idols of our city and our cultures. Idols are things, created things, good things even, that we promote to being ultimate things. And an ultimate thing is something that gives us, that gives our life meaning and that tells us that we are worth something. The problem is that only God fits the bill for that job. Everything else that we try to promote to that job enslaves us, oppresses us, makes us anxious, makes us fearful, makes us angry if we lose it. To put it in the words of David Foster Wallace, if money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. If it's your body or beauty or sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths. If it's power, you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. If it's your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And even the most secular person needs to find meaning or something or someone to tell them that they're worth something. In religious terms, even the most secular person is worshiping something. In Paul's time, the Epicureans were doing it one way, through pleasure. The Stoics were doing it a different way, through duty and responsibility. In our time, we do the same. Liberals seek it in one way and conservatives another. Rich people in one way and poor the other in another, etc., etc. We all need to find meaning in life or something or someone to tell us we're worth it. We're worth something. And you know what? That's on the individual level, but this happens even on the group level. People groups do this too. People groups put ultimate ultimate value on some things, on different things, good things even. And then these good things become oppressive. For example, <clears throat> my culture, Latin, the Latin culture, does this with the family. Family is a great gift given by God to us. But when we make family into an ultimate thing, it becomes oppressive, a straitjacket. You can't even find healing because to find healing, you need to speak the truth. And to speak the truth about the failures of a family is unthinkable in my culture. You have to sweep things under the rug. You have to suck things up. You know, in my culture, it's family. In other cultures, it's the clan or the nation or pleasure or power. For the Athenians, in Paul's time, it was knowledge. Look at verse 21. Now all the Athenians would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They wanted to keep up with knowledge. All cultures have their thing. Why did, what is the idol of your culture? And do you have eyes to see it? Everything that we promote to an ultimate thing, everything that's created that we promote to that job only enslaves us, oppresses us. Only the love of God sets people free.
this brings us to point number two, a heart that feels. Verse 16 says this again. Now, while Paul was waiting for his companions in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Provoked within him. Paul understood what idols do. They enslave. That's why he was conflicted or, quote, greatly upset, as another translation says it. He was upset. He was upset because God was not being glorified and worshipped as His holy, holiness demands. Idolatry steals the glory that is due to God alone. Paul was upset at this. He was angry at this. But if it was only anger that motivated Paul, he would have been, he would have been more like Jonah, you know, calling down God's curses on the Athenians and then going to sit somewhere hoping to see the fire come down. But no, Paul knew something more about God than just his holiness. He knew his love. And God's love is not some sentimentality. If it was a twisted view of love, a twisted sentimentality that motivated Paul, he would have said something like this to himself. Well, that's what they love. They love their idols. So who am I to tell them not to love what they love? I mean, love is love, right? Love is love after all. <laughs> That's what he would have said to himself. That would have sounded more like our culture, wouldn't it? You do you. But if that is what Paul's view was, he would have said nothing. But he did say something. He does say something because Paul knew that God is holy and loving. And that God is not only concerned with His dignity when it comes to idolatry, He's also concerned with our welfare when it comes to idolatry. Because idols enslave, they ruin us. It's like, how do you feel when you see a family member slide down the road of addiction? You feel, what do you feel? You would feel what Paul felt. You would feel what God feels, angry and sad at the same time because you love that person and you see how that addiction is destroying them. So with God, He gets angry when He sees the people that He loves destroying themselves by their addictions to their idols. We were not created to serve idols but to serve God. Only when we serve God do we find true life and true freedom. And God knows that. And that's why he gets angry when he sees the addiction to idols. Do our hearts feel what Paul felt as he walked around uh, Athens? Do our hearts feel what Paul felt as we walk around New York City? Or when we see our culture, do our hearts feel the way God feels? Hearts that are moved by compassion to do something, to say something, and this brings us to point number three, a mouth that speaks. Depending on your personality, it's easy to be either a truth teller or a softy. Truth teller types among us have no problem telling the truth, even if people get upset. But can you tell the truth with your heart full of tears? Can you tell the truth in ways that people can receive it and hear it? 
Can you also see the good, not only the bad? Can you be tender when you tell the truth? Or on the other hand, the softies among us who would rather not say anything, why rock the boat, why disrupt what seems to be harmony, but love compels to action. As someone has said, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference, it's not doing anything. How can we look at people destroying themselves and, not, and do nothing and say nothing? In Paul, we see a great example. He had eyes to see. He had eyes to see in a heart, in a heart that felt, and it troubled him. It angered and saddened him. It moved him to action, into very public action. He didn't have none of this faith is personal, keep it to yourself stuff. No. He took it to the. He took his faith to the marketplace, to the agora, to the mo most public of spaces in Athens. And there he reasoned with people. Verse 17. A commentator points out that it means he did not simply declare, but he entered into an engagement of give and take dialogue with people. We also see his gentleness in the way he gives them credit, almost a compliment for their religious activity. We see that in every way, he says, <clears throat> I see that in every way you are very religious. He's very civil, very courteous, very respectful. However, on the other hand, his, his feeling was not simply of compassion and mercy. Idolatry outraged him. And he didn't hide that there would be a day of judgment. He didn't hide that. And in his speech, he accuses these highly sophisticated and intellectual people of ignorance. Nothing could have been more insulting to them." End quote. But he did it in such a way that showed his love and concern. He didn't hide the truth, but he told it with compassion. How do we do this? Well, at the very least, we have to, we have to start by doing our homework. Paul did his homework first. He looked, he walked around, he examined, he read. He looked for the holes that inevitably show up. As it's been said, there's a God-shaped hole in, in the heart of man that can only be filled with God. Everything we try to fill that hole with only leaves holes all over the place. And Paul found the holes in the Athenian culture. He found it in their art and in their literature. And having once found them, he respectfully brings it to their attention. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar to this, with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, what therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. And then he proceeds to quote a couple of their poems. You see, what Paul saw in this altar was the Athenian acknowledgement that their religion and worldview did not break through, that their religion and worldview was still in darkness. They knew that there was something more out there that they didn't know, that they were in the dark still. Likewise in our cultures, where are the holes in our cultures? Where is the altar to the unknown God in our city? Having found the hole and have, 
then Paul intelligently and humbly and courteously makes his case, centering on the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. Paul clearly was not a Presbyterian minister, since he has at least six points in his sermon. For those of for those of you who don't know <clears throat> or haven't noticed, Presbyterian uh, sermons are usually um, usually have three points. Paul here has six points. <laughs> what are these six points? Very briefly, these are the six points of Paul's sermon to the Athenians. Point number one: God is the creator of the world. Verse twenty-four: God made the world and everything in it. This is very different from the gods of the Greek pantheon, most of whom were created themselves. The God of the Bible existed before the world and, and before the world existed and he brought it into being. Very different than the Greek gods. Point number two, God, the God of the Bible is transcendent and is not dependent on us or the world or anything in it. He doesn't need us. Verse 25, he says, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. A commentator notes that this contrasts God with the, with the idols, the Greek gods. The Greek gods needed worship, needed their worshipers to do things for them. The God of the Bible doesn't need anybody, no one. The Greek gods could be therefore manipulated and domesticated. The God of the Bible is untamed, undomestic, undomesticable. He cannot be tamed. He's like Aslan in, from the Chronicles of Narnia. Not tamed, but good. Point number three. <clears throat> Although God is transcendent, He is also the Lord of history and very involved with us. Verse 26 to, and 28. He determined the time set for them and the exact places that they should live. For in Him we live and move and have our being. That is that the God of the Bible is behind every circumstance of history and is very involved with us. Point number four, that God made us for fellowship with Him. Verse 27, it says, God did this so that men would seek Him and find Him. God wants us to find Him. That's crazy. He's like a dad playing hide-and-go-seek with his children who wants to be found. He's, he wants to be found. It's amazing. Again, the same commentator says, God does not need our obedience, our good deeds, or our worship. He needs nothing, yet He desires to have a relationship with us. This is not like the Western gods who only want loyalty, but not a loving relationship. This is not like the Eastern pantheist, pantheistic gods who can be experienced, but to whom you can't speak to because they're not personal. The God of the Bible is both personal and all-powerful and wants a relationship with us. Point number five. God cannot be worshipped by idols and images. Verse 29. If God is this big as, God is, as Paul is describing Him, if God is this great, then He shapes us, not us, Him. Paul argues that we are his offspring. We are created by him. He created us, not the other way around. And point number six, God, made, <clears throat> God has made Jesus Christ judge of the whole world. Verse 30 to 31, Paul says that 
up to the first coming of Jesus, God has not judged idolatry as he will in the future. He says, <clears throat> in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And then Paul says that the resurrection proves that Jesus will return to judge the world. And therefore, we have a need to repent. We need to repent. So, what has Paul said in all these six points? In summary, in summary, this is what he said. He has said that there is this God of power and justice who must punish sin, including idolatry. But this same God is also a God of love who seeks to have a relationship with us, who wants to fellowship with us. And the good news is that through Jesus, the punishment of that sin has been paid that we can be free from the enslavement of the idols and that we can live in the love of God, securing His love and approval. And that we can be certain of this, that this is not a myth like the Greek God myths. We can be certain that this is not a myth because this happened in history and the resurrection is the proof. It's good news. It's good news because we no longer have to slave away, working to get more and more money so that we can feel that our life is worth something or be so over, over preoccupied with beauty so that we don't feel ugly or seeking power so that we don't feel weak and afraid or seeking to be seen as smart so that we can be seen as worthy of respect. We don't need to serve those idols anymore our city's idols, our cultural idols, because Jesus has come to set us free. And that is what redemption is. The word redemption literally means brought out of slavery. Jesus came not to be our helper and teacher primarily. He came to be our Redeemer, our Savior. Jesus came not primarily as an example, as our, an example for us, but, but as our substitute. He came to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died as a penalty for our failures. When we believe in Jesus, when we trust in Him, we get His spotless record and all the rights and riches that come along with us, with that. And He gets our debts, which He paid for on the cross. People call this the beautiful exchange. The Bible calls this our righteousness, our worth, our worthiness. Our lives are worth, have worth, the highest worth. And this worth is not based on what we can produce. Produce, 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 New York City's slave master. Produce, produce. We no longer have to listen to that. Because we are worth much more than the world's riches put together. We are worth much more than everything put together because God gave His Son for us because He loved us. That's how much we are worth. As someone has said, imagine you worked for a certain rich man. Your relationship depended on your performance week by week. That's what serving an idol is like. You have to perform Otherwise, you get punished or worse. Now imagine you wanted to work. <clears throat> sorry. Now you now imagine you wanted to work for a really rich man, but instead of hiring you, 
that rich man adopted you. Suddenly, the relationship is not a transactional one, but a loving one, an intimate one. And his wealth is all, of you, is, is all yours automatically. And it doesn't come to you on the basis of your performance. It comes to you on the basis of the legal relationship. And that's what it means to be a Christian. That we have come into relationship with God on the merits of Jesus Christ. That we've been accepted, not as workers, as beloved children. And this is what Paul was offering to the Athenians. And this is what is offered to you, to me, to us here in New York City. Have we embraced it? Have we experienced it? Have you received it? For all who have received this, this brings an amazing sense of joy and relief. And it produces a new quality of life that joyfully repents of any remaining residual idol in our hearts. And it produces a new quality of life that more and more shakes off that old, the old motivation, that slave mentality. And is empowered more and more by grateful love, a child of God mentality. And it produces a new quality of life that gives us eyes to see our city and our cultures as God sees them. Rejoicing in their beauty and compelled to action when we see the darkness in them. Paul saw the longing in the heart of the Athenian culture. That they longed to be filled with the grace and the love of the God they did not know yet. And Paul was moved to share that love with them. The love that fulfilled that cultural longing. And so with ours. The longing of our city and of our cultures. Jesus is what fulfills them. Jesus is the one that brings light and clarity to our darkness. May the grace of God fill our hearts so much to give us eyes to see, a heart that's, that feels, and a mouth that speaks so that we can bring this love to our city and to those around us. Please pray with me. Father, I want to thank you for, Lord, bring us, bringing us out of darkness, out of slavery to idols, into your loving tenderness, Lord. We pray that you would help us. Help us, Father, uh, live for your glory, rejoicing in the fact that we are no, no longer slaves, but um, beloved children of yours. And please help us, Lord God, have see, eyes to see our, the beauty and the brokenness in our city the beauty and the brokenness in our cultures. And Father, that your heart, your love would compel us to move and to speak and to share your love with, it, with them, with our city and with our cultures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.